some of this stuff that Silicon Valley doesn't understand too, is they can't get in the way of that demographic shift. This stuff is happening, right? Like the wealth creation is happening. The in increased influence is happening. And whether or not they want to kind of impact their workforces as a result of it, I think that they're going to be a failure if they do not. Tristan Walker is the founder and CEO of Walker & Company Brands. He's 33 years old. In this episode, I somewhat jokingly say that growing up he was an odd kid because of the surface contradictions. He's a business mind who made a name for himself when he joined a mobile technology startup, but his first company focuses on skin and hair care. He grew up in a working class family in New York and his father was killed when he was young, but he went to a boarding school. His most prominent investors, Andreessen Horowitz, the Marquis Silicon Valley venture capital firm. But he and I speak plainly about Silicon Valley's diversity challenges. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. Tell a friend. I recently visited Tristan Walker at the offices of Walker & Company Brands in Palo Alto, California, the heart of Silicon Valley. This episode was special for me because, let's be frank, there aren't many African-American technology journalists in this business. I'm one. There aren't many African-American entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. And Tristan is arguably the best known. I'm seven years older than Tristan, but we're of a similar generation. We've been a part of this era of sweeping change, and we've seen what's missing. And who's missing? Tristan's first brand, Bevel, sort of represents this. It's a shaving brand that helps men avoid razor bumps, a particular challenge for black men. There's technology behind his approach, though, and he's raised more than $33 million on a vision with deeper and broader implications. Here's Tristan Walker. How do you define what Bevel is? Uh, Bevel is the first and only end-to-end shaving system designed specifically to help uh, both men and women reduce irritation, razor bumps, etc. Uh, which is crazy that shaving's been around for over 100 years and nobody's tried to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Walker & Company is all about making health and beauty simple for people of color, and Bevel is really just the first manifestation of that vision. Um, and now you're out with the second manifestation. Yes, Form. <laughs> Form, Form Beauty. Yes. Um, we're very excited. You know, we, we launched Form some three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, and Form is really built with the 75% of women in mind who want to take out the guesswork in hair care. Right? Uh -huh. Like hair care is very difficult. Knowing which products to use, when to use, how to use them, why to use them, uh, the impact of the environment on your hair care routines. Um, you know, we've brought that really to fold in a big way. And Form delivers not only custom product regimens uh, for folks, but also custom usage instructions. Um, so if you live in a certain high humidity zip code or you swim often, et cetera, we'll deliver both those custom products and usage instructions for your use case, right? Solving really important hair care problems that you might have. So what kind of milestones can you share on Bevel in terms of sure. sales, distribution, sure. where, where have things gone yeah, in yeah. three so, and a half years? So in terms of like total sales, we just have a rule internally that we don't uh, really kind of quote that out, but I can tell you a few things. Okay. Number, number one, we've been either doubling or tripling each year since inception, right? Uh, just to give you a sense, we started retail in February of last year with our Target partnership uh -huh. uh, and then with Amazon in October. Uh, retail was some 10% of our business last year. This year it'll be north of 40. Wow. Um, and we're so not on excited and encouraged by that. That's the non-subscription portion of the business. That's correct. Um, yeah. So we were subscription only until February of last year. Yeah. Uh, and you know the target relationship opened up a la carte opportunities for us. And we learned very quickly a couple things. Number one, people want choice, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so boxing and subscription isn't kind of the most customer-centric thing uh, for folks. Folks want to try the product, experience the product, feel the product. Here's probably the time for a disclaimer. Sure. I am a Bevel customer. Awesome. And have been for, I don't even remember how long, two years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. And I, I, I fit in this category. Sure. I had so much product backed up. Yeah. Because I, I, I don't swap out the razor every Fair. day. So I had so much backed up. It's like, I need to stop this subscription and just yeah. work through my stash at this point. Understood. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, you know, we started out thinking um, it was the most customer centric, right? We mm -hmm. ship you 60 blades, right, for three months worth. 
just to give you, you know, a fresh blade each shave, right? Mm -hmm. You want to have you the cleanest, sharpest shave that you can, um, which is great if you shave every day or every other day, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but there are some folks like you who might not want that, right? Which I'm is just why not that we hairy. It up, I can use totally fine. One side of the razor one day <laughs> totally and the fine. other side the other day, yeah, right? Because yeah, it's yeah, got yeah, two sides. works that well. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but once we open up right. the target, we realize a couple things. Number one, again, people just want to try the product first. Mm. Um, you know, for a lot of customers uh, of Bevel, they're shaving for either the first time ever, right, or the second time ever because they've been dealt a false bill of goods in the past. So to be able to experience it in Target stores, it's unique and important. And one, one thing that we found, which is really interesting, uh, is that once we open up to retail, is non-cannibalistic, right? Hmm. So some 70% of our customers online for Bevel are black men. Uh -huh. uh, close to 60% offline are white men, right? Really? Which is an incredible um, kind of opportunity for us. Because there was no the big for black people only well, sign. Well, it's, it's interesting. That, I think that target, contributes right? to it in a big way, yeah. right? Um, but also, people just want a better way to shave. Uh -huh. you know, while 80% of black men and women have this issue of irritation, 30% of everyone else does. Mm. Uh, you know, I remember getting this uh, great rule from an old retired uh, CPG executive. She always called it this 1031. You know, 10 feet away, you want to be able to see the product and have it draw your attention. And in our aisle, you have a sea of blue and orange, right? Mm -hmm. And you have our stark white packaging. It's interesting. Three feet away, you want that, like, sale. Like, what is the functional benefit? So you see our clinical seal, helps reduce razor bumps, et cetera. Okay, this is interesting. Let me go pick it up. You turn it around, might see someone who looks like me, right, who's dealt with this issue with the testimonial, mm -hmm. explains what Bevel's really about, and that closes the sale. And I think that contributed to kind of the success that we're seeing in retail, where it didn't start in the ethnic beauty aisle. Um, so kind of the intention was really about the efficacy. And it's a big reason why our sales are increasing as quickly as they are. Did you have to shift at all how you define Bevel? Yeah, because no, of that? not at all. In fact, it was easier because we have a clear point of differentiation in that aisle. Okay. Right? There are some, if you consider the other kind of shave providers in the space, they all have multi-blade razors. They're all five to six blades. Um, there's really no key point of differentiation there. And we are exclusively focused on solving a skincare issue. You know, I think a lot of people think that, you know, Bevel's a shaving brand. Sure. I think it's more a skincare brand that solves a skincare issue. And we just use shaving tools to fix that skincare issue. And I think people recognize that unique point of difference. So tell me again, you, retail is now 40%? It will be this year. It will be this year, 40% of your business. I suppose trajectory-wise, you expect it will pass 50%. It could, that rate very well. Uh, look, I mean, Form, uh, you know, we announced our online direct-to-consumer model, but we also announced our partnership with Sephora. Um, you know, the reason um, that's critical and important, and also with Bevel, with Amazon, you think about things international, right, mm -hmm. our opportunities they're in, um, you know, which is a bigger market for us holistically. And I think retail is great at just driving that awareness, right? So, look, I could see a world where retail is north of 50%. Right? But the great thing about it is that our margins are similar to our D2C margins, too. Um, so it's a blessing <laughs> for us uh, that we can kind of approach both of those um, channels in a way that's still profitable um, and non-cannibalistic. Uh, so we'll keep, keep pushing for as long as that can last. <laughs> and tell me again demographically how retail is different from your direct-to-consumer. Sure. Um, so 70% of, for Bevel specifically. For, for Bevel specifically. Um, right. So 70% of our customers on GetBevel.com, uh, black men. Mm -hmm. and close to 60% offline white men. But what's interesting is even at Target, we still have some 35 to close to 40% still African-American men, which still over-indexes heavily in that, sh in that retailer channel. Mm -hmm. um, we're 40% um, millennial, which heavily over-indexes in that channel. So what we're finding at Target is that we're introducing new people, uh, people to a new way to shave, um, up-leveling the category, our basket sizes are 3x our closest competitors, and we're introducing new people to the store. Right. That is a dream for our brand that yeah. we're incredibly excited about. Okay, so you're based in Palo Alto. We are. <laughs> which is one of the most expensive places, I was going to say in the country, it's one of right. the most expensive places <laughs> in the world Fair. to be based. Sure. A lot of uh, companies that are based here, it's like, well, this is where we find the software engineers. we got to be here. Why are you here? So a couple of things. Number one, New York's expensive. That's right. LA is expensive. Uh -huh. Palo Alto is expensive. I'm here because I want to live here. Okay. Right? I enjoy living here. My son enjoys being here. My wife enjoys working and living here. Um, so first, it started with a place where you know my family could be happy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, look, we built it from Palo Alto, and it's working, right? Um, and for us. 
you know, if you're kind of thinking about the expense, we only have 25 folks on our team. Our business model is incredibly uh, leveraged in terms of our kind of wanting to grow profitably, among other things. So we're disciplined in that regard. Mm. Um, so while, you know, I think there have been a bunch of e-commerce players that have really chased top line growth, 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 growth. Um, and we want to take our time. Right? And Are you an e-commerce player? Profitably. We're omnichannel. Uh, that's always yeah. been our approach from the very start. Naturally, we're e-commerce because we sell that way and we started sure. that way. But everybody um, has to now. Well, I, I, I always thought that way. Uh -huh. you know, the, the, my favorite stat, you know, I moved out here nine years ago. There's always a stat that e-commerce was 10, 11% of all commerce. Mm -hmm. The number hasn't changed, <laughs> right? <laughs> retail, offline, physical retail is some 90% of all commerce. Now. Um, I don't think that 90% is going away. I think it's just going to change, right? But we have to embrace that, which is why Omnichannel is so important. Why would we leave that away? Especially when we consider the things that we're finding with Bevel. People just want to see it and touch it and feel it and know that it exists in real life. Your highest profile investor is Andreessen Horowitz. Yep. Um, Mark Andreessen of Netscape fame, Ben Horowitz of many different types sure. of fame, but he's worked with Andreessen for a while. They sold the company to HP, et cetera, right. et cetera. Right. They've backed uh, lots of popular, well-known tech companies, Tanium, et cetera. Why, I mean, you're a retail play, and re retail's been rediscovered now. Amazon just bought Whole Foods. It's That's like, right. oh wow, offline retail, it's amazing, right. omni-channel. But why be in the Silicon Valley mix? What is the technology, the long-term technology, angle of Walker and Company brand. Let's talk about form. I think really okay. form speaks to the future of everything that Walker and Company is going to be about. Mm -hmm. You have this vision that everyone on the planet experiences a Walker and Company brand. I want that brand that they experience to be the last brand that they have to in that category. There's only one unique way that you can do it. You have to understand that person's need state, the problems, the lifestyle that that person goes through, etc. You know, I always give this example. You know, my wife and I, we live in Palo Alto. Let's assume we had family in Tampa Bay, Florida, right? Um, where the humidity is higher. And let's say that family has a pool in the back, right? Mm -hmm. and, you know, we swim more often, chlorine on our hair. We should either be using different products differently within our line or the same products differently based on that makeup. You know, we have a form, what we call a form consultation. Uh, you know, if you go to formbeauty.com, it's a 15 to 17 question survey. You'll answer questions like, what zip code do you live in? We'll get a sense of the humidity and tell you how that impacts your hair. Are you pulling that in from like National Weather Service? Correct. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, you know, we'll ask you things like, how much water do you drink every day? What hair products do you use currently? Right? Get, getting a sense for your lifestyle, how much you exercise, swim, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and really customizing that personalization in a way that's unique to you. Right? When you think about those environmental factors, you know, a lot of folks think about personalization as changing the color of the formulation or the smell of it, which really doesn't have any efficacy, right? Mm -hmm. We want to consider you and what you do, right? Um, so after that, uh, you recommended a suite of products that we've made and also, again, the custom usage instructions. That requires technology. We're learning it over time. That allows us to improve our formulas over time. Mm. Um, in addition to our consultation, we have what we're calling or beta testing our form hair map, a microscopic analysis profile. What does this mean? For those folks that are able to participate in that beta, um, a couple of days later you get an envelope from us and we'll say, take out a couple of strands of hair if you're head of your comb, put in the envelopes, send it back to us. Right? What we'll do, we'll analyze those hair strands under a microscope, blow it up a thousand X, we'll show you the level of breakage, damage, knots, et cetera, in your hair, right? Hmm. And you know, we make product. So we'll say, based on the damage observed in your hair, based on the subjective questionnaire that you filled out, the humidity in the zip code where you live, pH level reward, stuff like that. Use this shampoo, this conditioner, this styler, whatever permutation of our products for a month. How is that possibly worth it for you? Wait, I mean, that wait, must wait, be wait, expensive, right? Wait, That's wait, like wait. a blood test practically, wait, wait. isn't it? Right. It's not even done yet. Okay. By, by the end of it, um, a month later, we'll ask you for that hair strand and we'll show you objectively kind of what our products have done in your hair. Yeah. A couple things. Number one, we're beta testing it. So we're going to okay. start small and figure out how to kind of improve the throughput and make this a real true consumer play. No one's ever done this before, right? Um, but this is a future that I think this industry needs. Um, this is one of the last industries on earth that are still built completely on the shoulders of subjectivity. It's a half a trillion dollar industry built 100% on the shoulders of subjectivity. What right. other industries are still like that? That's a problem. These are things that people are putting on their faces, their hair, everything, right? So much in the same way that they're doing this for hair, we can use that same thing for skincare, cosmetics, health, right? Right. That is an ambition that I think is pretty sizable. It is attainable. And you asked the question in the beginning, you know, Andreessen Horowitz and, and why? It's that. Okay.
Yeah, Mark Andreessen has as much hair as I do. So <laughs> hey, I mean, look, they, between Mark and Ben, there's yeah. two things that I learned from those guys. Mark is always about... Don't take your know, hair care advice. No, touche. Mark is always like, you know, is this person asking um, the right questions? Like, is this a big enough opportunity? Right? What does this person believe that a few other people believe? And the thing I learned from Ben is like, is this the right person to actually execute on this thing, right? Hmm. Um, and, and kind of having that accountability to those folks who've done it uniquely well, I think it was a special thing for us. You know, they've invested in all three of our routes, right? Hmm. As a result of it, and they really, really do believe in this vision, and we haven't even scratched the surface yet. Let's talk about you. Uh-oh. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Uh, Queens, New York. Born and raised. Yeah, my family's still there right now. How often do you get back? Uh, well, as often as I'm in New York. So I'm usually in New York now that I have my son, probably once a quarter, um, and I try and visit my mom as much as I can. Um, you know, funny enough, she lived in Flushing, Queens, New York. It's on the 7 train. It's the last stop on the local 7 train. So I try my best when I can, when I have this two hours to like, commute back and forth. Um, but yeah, I miss it. Siblings? I have an older brother, older sister. Uh, my brother is 47 now. My sister's 42, and I just turned 33. Okay. Yeah. Um, you're a lot younger than they are. A lot younger. Yeah, yeah. How did I that have to happen? joke with my mom that I'm the mistake. <laughs> Fortunately, it worked out. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Look, I mean, uh, my brother and my sister. I mentioned I'm from Queens, New York, Southside, Jamaica, Queens. Um, you know, when I was born, my mother was like, "Hey, you know, you're going to be the one. Like, you're going to make us proud." Um, and she did everything she could to ensure that that was possible. Uh, and I thank her uh, interminably <laughs> um, for that kind of conviction. Um, that forcefulness, um, and she made me into who I am right now, for sure. By the time you were running around and aware of things, yeah. your brother was pretty much, what, out of the house, or at least? No, 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 so I lived with my brother until, gosh, time I graduated high school. Okay. Um, so he was always kind of a figure around me. Uh, my father was killed when I was three years old, so oh. like he really took over that. Sorry uh, to hear that. Nah, thank you for that. Um, so he took over that father figure uh, in the household for me, uh, and I love him to this day for it. Um, but yeah, my sister too. Mm -hmm. um, entrepreneurial roots? Staff in your family? or? <laughs> oh, I, from the time I was six years old, I always joke. Um, you know, my brother would always send me to the store to get him candy or something like that. And that was the time I always started to take commissions for that. You know, and I, I realized really the importance of like ownership, right? Um, and you know, I do that over and over and there's just silly things like that. But I knew, you know, what profits meant. Um, you know, revenue in, costs out. And I learned that lesson very, very early, right? How? It's out of necessity and survival. A lot of people don't <laughs> right? learn it. I mean, I had to. Even <laughs> I mean, from where I grew up. A lot of people who have to learn it still don't learn it. And it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of friends in this industry who still haven't learned that yet. Uh -huh. I mean, it, when it's survival, when it's necessary, it's an easy equ equation to remember. So who taught <laughs> right? you? Pardon? Who taught you? Um, well, me and my brother, right? Okay. And you start to realize, hey, I'm doing so this work for free. So he offered you a commission. <laughs> yeah. no, well, no, I demanded it after a while. Uh, after a time, you realize, God, you know, you're taking me off these video games to go to the store for you. I got to be paid for this stuff, right? Um, and I tr I'm trained. I mean, I say it a bit facetiously, but I, pretty matter of fact. Um, and then what changed everything, I went to boarding school. How did that happen? Um, so I was a uh, participant in the Boys Club in New York, after mm -hmm. school program, um, you know, I played basketball with them, um, you know, I went there every day. Uh, and they had this new education program, uh, so they had um, what they called Academic All-Stars, this basketball team that traveled all around kind of prep schools in New England mm -hmm. to introduce them to prep schools for postgraduate years. I was in eighth grade, I tried out for the team, it was like this kind of like a really elite team with the Boys Club in New York. Um, I made it to like the last kind of tryout and I couldn't participate because they were in Harlem and my mother was like, you're not going to get on a train to go to Harlem by yourself, right? Like 9 p.m. practices to come back home. Right. But the coach said, you know, what are your grades? And I told him I was like 98 or whatever. He's like, you need to take this test, right? Like you have a talent, like you can play basketball, you're pretty smart. And it was the SSAT. 
I took it. I did decently well. And the SSAT is? Yeah, so it's uh, the like interest exam for boarding prep schools. Okay. Right? So like the SAT is for colleges. They have a similar thing for prep schools, which is kind of wild when you think about it. I <laughs> uh, did pretty well, and then I had the choice to go to either a school called the Hotchkiss School in Lakeville, Connecticut, on a full scholarship, or a school called Kate in Santa Barbara. Uh, and at the time, I was supposed to meet with both of those schools in the same week and then make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, Hotchkiss was like, I need my decision tomorrow. I went up there that day, loved it. My mother was like, all right, we're going here, and the rest is history. <laughs> right? oh. um, and at that time, I learned a little bit differently from when I was six years old up until that time of like, you know, um, you know, profit, loss, get rich kind of schemes, <laughs> so to speak, or contrivances. Um, I learned what wealth was at boarding school, right? Like generational wealth. And it was an incredible, incredible time for me, an incredible learning experience for me. But that was a time I knew that I could figure this thing out, right? And really make that kind of profit equation, like really understand it deeply and make it sustain itself. What made you feel that way about it versus, boy, this is really different from what I grew up with? And, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I always refer to this thing like last names, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And the importance of it and the legacy of it, right? When I think about even in our industry, the Proctors and the Gambles and the Johnsons, right? Like those things carry and legacy matters. And you start to think about even at these schools that I went to, you know, Rockefellers and Fords, but like many um, folks within that family going to that school over generations, right? It's like, mm -hmm. how is this possible? This is amazing. And if I can kind of ensure that my family has that same kind of legacy or standard of excellence, I think that's an important thing. Whether it be um, money-based, um, more importantly, values-based, right? I saw that consistency in those four years and it had a unique impact on my life. Why, but why do you go into that situation and take away from that, well, I want the Walker family to be a name uh, that, that can be at this school for mm -hmm. generations to come instead of, well, my name isn't Rockefeller. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that means I, I'm not gonna have that kind of generational possibility. I mean, I made it there with the background that I had, right? And at that point, once I was 14 and I was there, mm -hmm. and saw I was doing well with these folks, I asked, why can't I do it myself? Hmm. I was never intimidated by it, <laughs> right? And I realized that it was possible, right? Now, whether or not, like, I was going to attain it, you know, leave that to God or whatever, <laughs> but I knew that it was possible, and that's all that I needed, right? And much like when I was six years old, like, I knew what was possible. From the time I was six to 14, I got into one of the top boarding schools in the country. Was that easy for you to switch living situations? Mm -hmm. That's, you know, one of the major things that's difficult for adults, you yeah. know, new kid, yeah, changing, totally. you know, living situation, changing jobs. For a 14-year-old, changing schools is like changing jobs. Yeah. And plus, you're living in an entirely different environment. Totally. How jarring was it? To uh, it wasn't very. In fact, I wanted new experiences, right? Uh, okay. It was everything my mother prepared me for. Right? Uh, I mean, I could have been going outside. You were kind of an odd kid, day. huh? I was. I mean, I still am. <laughs> I still am. I mean, if you just sort of yeah. like adjust to all this stuff and assume no, it's going to work out for I'm, me. I mean, I, I do believe that. Yeah. Right? I mean, it has. And, I was and an odd kid conviction, too. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that conviction has gotten deeper with me, right? Huh. When I kind of reflect on all the things that have happened in my life. Yeah, I would have never thought I'd be running a health and beauty products company, but like this is the one thing that I feel I'm uniquely qualified to do. But all the experiences I've had until this point have prepared me for this moment, right? Um, so, look, I, I didn't really have that conviction until like by the end of my high school time, but I was starting it by the time I was 14. And look, the reason I was able to adapt to that transition is because, look, I've gone through transformations my entire life. Uh, the projects I was in, uh, my father getting killed, uh, the relationships that I had to build over time, my focus on my studies, <laughs> right? Um, and then just having my world open up, right? It's like, man, I'm gonna take advantage of this situation, right? <laughs> like, what other opportunities can come out of this? And I realized the importance of opportunity when I was really young out of necessity. You mentioned again your father getting killed, so mm -hmm. I'll go back to that. Mm -hmm. How does that weave into your story? What what about that tragedy have you carried with you? Yeah, so I carried a couple of things. Number one, I still to this day don't know the reason why he was killed. I never asked my mother, and I probably won't, and here's the reason why. Um, I knew it was tied to something that was relatively negative, right? Where I grew up, you can kind of draw the associations, but I remembered a couple of things. Number one, I had a deep love for my father. Uh, in fact, so much so that I had like a photo of him in my wallet until I was like, 22 years old and someone stole my wallet, it kind of pissed me off. <laughs> but regardless of the fact, I didn't want to taint like that love and appreciation. 
Um, but you know, how did it kind of drive me going forward? I'm a father now, right? And I think about like what kind of father I want to be to my son. And because I didn't really have that experience, it allows mm -hmm. me to start from a clean slate, right? Like what are the values that are important to me? Uh, how can I drive consistency in every single thing that I do every single day? How do I ensure that he's learning these things and getting raised right, right? Um, without losing sight of all the things that my mother did, right? Um, mm -hmm. And disciplining me, focusing me, right? Like ensuring that um, you know, I was gonna attain those dreams um, and not conflate the two. And I think about that every single day, right? Yeah. And I want him to have as much love for me when I'm present as I did for my father when he wasn't. Yeah. Right. You started boarding school in the mid-90s. Uh, mid 1998 was the first year that I went to boarding school. Okay. Yeah. I think of that as being um, peak cultural appreciation for diversity, <laughs> peak affirmative action. That's when I was <laughs> finishing college. <laughs> Fair. It seems the, the, the culture is questioning, I think, the assumption that multiculturalism is a good thing mm -hmm. at a level um, I didn't expect sure. growing up and probably never seen on the surface, at least, mm -hmm. in the culture in, in my lifetime. Yeah. What did you experience at boarding school in terms of attitudes about race, questions about your background, yeah, yeah. and how did that affect the way you fit in? Yeah, look, I mean, it's no different from even college. You know, folks have the athletes table, and you have the drama, and then you have like the black folks, and then you have whatever. Did you have enough black folks to have a table? We had we had a school of 500 folks. We did two tables actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, we had 500 kids. It's probably out of all 520 or so. Okay. Um, which you know, we had four classes, so you break it up, and the numbers just feel small as well. But it is what it is. But mm -hmm. like you had the affinity groups, right? Right. Um, that's just human nature in general. It's just boarding school kind of forces some of that stuff. You know, I had for fortunate enough the ability to kind of flex between a lot of those, right? Because you know, I was an athlete. I was, um, uh, you know, tried to be an academic, right? Like I was a part of all the kind of like Black Student Alliance stuff and all that jazz. Um, but it was there, like, and you felt viscerally, uh, especially coming in. I was joking before we started this. At the time, like, coming in, no one trained me on like what a verb was, right? <laughs> By the end of that first year, I was talking about predicate nominatives and, like, and all that stuff, right? With some semblance of excellence. Um, but I knew kind of where I was coming in and I knew where they started, right? And kind of more directly, I remember all these kind of examples where, like, you know, kids would wear hats in the dining room and you weren't allowed to. Um, but then a lot of folks who I knew were like do-rags in the dining room. <laughs> and there's like this interesting debate because like Hotchkiss was very much about like free speech, right? Um, and if you wanted to talk about something, there's like a free speech board and an open up debate for the community. And there's an amazing debate about like the merits of like why certain folks are able to wear do-rags versus like hats. And it created this like weird um, kind of situation internally, but it put it out in the open, right? Where folks understood like, what the need was. Well, just the awkwardness of having to even explain it. You, know, you even like read the kind of free speech about it and they wrote like do-rag wrong. And it's like, like it, it's just like, depending on how you read it, who's reading it, it could either come off as disrespectful, it could come off as obtuse, um, but it was so, a moment to talk about for it. For listeners who don't understand, what sure, a do-rag sure. is. <laughs> Go for it. Um, uh, so this is sort of like, yeah, like a, a, a head covering. It can That's be right. kind of like stocking type material, right. oftentimes. Black people will put this over That's our right. hair. That's right. You know, to, to for keep, multiple reasons, right? You to know, get, maybe to, to keep the waves get them spinning. From getting, yeah, you do that. And waves are what happens <laughs> when you've got curly, kinky hair and you yeah. brush it, yeah. right? That's right. And you kind of get a nice. That's right. That's right. Wave as much as I tried to get the waves, it didn't work. That said, there are other reasons. There are other reasons why I did it, and this is why like, the debate's the interesting. I, so here's the thing. Of course I did, like with the you know the tin can and all. That. All right, right. Uh, all right. So like sporting waves. <laughs> so I, I mean, I use it or tried to do that stuff, but I also use it because look, I mean, you take care of yourself at night. You put it on, and you don't want to have like these oils and stuff on your pillow. Right. right. Affect your skin. All like uh -huh. there's all types of stuff. But like it's a reason that like people don't even think about. Much in the same way that you have some comfort in kind of wearing your hat at the table too. Right. And it's not anything that like. Now, was it the white students wanted to wear hats? 
It wasn't necessarily the white students. Just the white students. But no, was no. it was it an issue of I don't understand no, why? No, but, but here's the issue. So I don't want to make this a white versus black thing. There was like an athlete who was like a hockey player who happened to be white, uh-huh. right? And you know they wore hats. And then you know there were students who happened to wear do rags and they were black, right? Right. Uh, so it just opened up this interesting debate. But look, I mean, you kind of cut it along black white lines uh, based on the way it reads, the way you interpret it, etc. Regardless of the fact, um, you know, it was a pretty open community in that way. And the thing about this, when you're 15 years old, right? Like, the beauty in, in one's ability to discuss this thing and have a discourse in it, and you think about kind of what's happening now, where like you have these like groups that are fairly kind of fractious, right? And like believe what they believe and aren't open to kind of other opinions. That's the one thing I valued about that experience, however hard or easy or whatever it was. Um, so even today. Like, I have a level of transparency in my approach um, that I think I was able to take from that. Your approach to? Um, just directness in anything, right? Um, if there's anything happening at the company that I want my employees to know, like, I'm very transparent about that, right? Because I want to open that discourse, and I don't want to, I don't want it to be hidden, because I want this to be the best company that can be. It's easier to talk about the elephant in the room when you've been the elephant in the room very often, right? Yeah, fair. I mean, <laughs> totally, but you know what? Like... <laughs> Every, the thing about being the elephant in the room, a lot of people talk about it as this like negative connotation. Now I think about it as my advantage. Like mm-hmm. there's a unique advantage to being that elephant in the room. You just need to make sure that you work it in a way that um, you know is again values based, that benefits your eventual end and hopefully for our company. And mm-hmm. fortunately, I've been blessed with that opportunity. College. Yeah. You went to. Gosh, that was just four years in high school, wasn't it? <laughs> a long way to go. <laughs> I went to Stony Brook University. Um, great time, Long Island SUNY school. Uh, I was there for three years. I graduated valedictorian, my class. Uh, very, very special time for me. Three year people are usually in college for four years. They are. Um, actually, so this is the thing I thank uh, Hotchkiss for. Uh, I came in with enough AP credits to skip my first year in college, ah. uh, which was awesome. Now, funny enough, like I kind of think back and I'm like, man, college would have been fun to be there for four years. <laughs> but I was in a rush at that time. To do what? Uh, this is the wealth story, right? I was like, okay. man, I don't want to go back to, you know, that whole, you know, living the way that we did. I want to get my family out of this stuff. What will it take? Um, I knew I didn't want to be an athlete, right? Like, I wanted to put my brain to work. Uh, and Wall Street was the next best thing for me. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be in these studies. I'm going to ace every single class that I have. Uh, and at least Stony Sunnybrook wasn't one of those schools that, like, a lot of these Wall Street banks uh, recruit at. So why'd you and, go there? Why did I go to Stony Brook? Yeah. It's close to home, right? My mom, et cetera, I can uh-huh. do well. Um, and what happened was um, I applied to this program called Sponsor for Educational Opportunity, uh, and I had a front office role at Lehman Brothers <laughs> like that first summer. The next summer was Lehman Brothers again. My last semester at university was Lehman Brothers in London. Uh, and by the time I graduated, after the third year, I worked full time at Lehman. <laughs> okay. And the rest is history. Yeah. Um, so you, you graduated early enough mm-hmm. that Lehman's still going to be good for a they few years. They were still around, yeah. yeah. I graduated in 2005. <laughs> so funny, so my internships were on the, um, the mortgage pass-through trading desk, which was mm-hmm. probably one of the most profitable desks like all over the place. And this was back in 2000. My first internship was 2004. Mm-hmm. Then I did 2005. And then uh, I was on the bond trading desk in London for that time. So I spent about a year and a half after that at Lehman, then I went to J.P. Morgan. So it was before the Lehman collapse, and in fact, I left J.P. Morgan in January 2008 when I got into Stanford, before mm. the crazy collapse. Right. So I, I would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good timing. Yeah, of course. And then from there, you end up at Foursquare. Uh, so I went to Stony Brook, or not Stony Brook, Stanford. I got into Stanford. Right. Um, so I got to but Stanford. I just, yeah, you said Stanford, but eventually you end up at Foursquare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I got to Foursquare between my first and second year of business school. Right. Um, Fortunately, there were just two founders at the time. They gave me a shot, and I showed up at their office and went to work. How did the connection happen? Yeah, yeah. So infamous story, emailed the founders some eight times. Um, they never replied until the last one. Uh, I was eight in L- times? Eight times. Yeah, I'll never forget this. Because like, after that time, I wasn't going to do it anymore. Uh, and then <laughs> uh, Dennis sent me an email, and I'll, I'll never forget verbatim. He said, you know what? I just may take you up on some of this. Are you ever in New York? Then Some of what? Um, some of the ideas that I had for the company, right? Because I was so excited about it. I think we had 10,000 users at the time. I was like, listen, yeah, I can help you guys. Like, I have the context for this stuff. In fact, these contexts that they want to speak to you here, like it's on a platter, right? And pe- for people who don't know, Foursquare at the time was yeah. about 
using your phone yeah. to check into places. So yeah. you have GPS on your phone, so your phone knows where you are. Mm -hmm. You know, mapping is available on phones, and you know, this is my favorite coffee shop, so yeah. I'm going to check in there. And if I check in more than anybody else, I become the mayor of the coffee so shop. So let me let me give you the pitch, right? right. I remember this pitch because I helped refine it a little bit. Okay. So at Foursquare, we want to make cities easy to use, right? And what do we mean by that? You know, when you think about even your own city, there are all these like places that you've never been that have a unique perspective on it that's cool, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, we had these things called tips, right? That gave you just these omnipresent um, kind of thoughts on what you should order, right? You read like Yelp reviews, you get nine paragraphs, right? And sometimes you just want to know, order the cappuccino, right? Because that's what they're well known for. And it's serendipitous, right? You pass by a place, it pings you, it's like, oh, walk in here, and it changes the way you explore a city. That was so unique to me. And it really hit me when um, you know, we had these things called badges. If, if you do a certain number of things, it changes your behavior, you're rewarded for it. You know, I was at Stanford, and I really wanted this gym rat badge. You gotta go to the gym 10 times, check in there, you unlock it. A rainy ass day, right? And it was like, I had nine check-ins, and I was like, you know what, I don't want to go. And I was all fat back then, it was bad. <laughs> um, and then I ended up, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna get this badge. And I went to the gym for it. And I was like, yeah, I'm grown, <laughs> right? Like, like, like this made me want to do it, and I was like, this is a special, special company. Then I immediately reached out to him, and that's when the eight times happened, and when he replied back, I flew out the following morning from LA to New York, showed up at his office, he thought it was unexpected, and I sat down next to him and got to work. And your role was? I ran business development for the company. Uh, that's where I started, did that for about three years. Um, and then I went on to uh, work in Andreessen Horowitz. Are you an engineer? I'm not. I'm far away from that. <laughs> Why not? Away from Why not? I mean, you were, I wish a, I were. you were clearly a great student. Yeah. You decided to do stuff on Wall Street, so you're probably pretty good yeah. with numbers. Yeah. Um, why didn't you decide to code? Because I, mean, I mean, nobody told me about it. I mean, I, I mean, it's it's one thing that it feels obvious today. In 1998, I mean, I had my compact Presario, like this big thing. In uh, fact, my first year in, in um, at Hotchkiss, I didn't have a computer. I had to get a loaner from Hotchkiss because my family couldn't afford it, and it was like this Apple IIe, while like all these other folks had laptops and stuff. And like I couldn't even write my term papers or anything because I, I just needed help. Like it is that, you know, this is only 15 years. Ago. It wasn't right. that long ago. Um, had I known in living in New England, like it's a completely different thing than like what's out here. I didn't even consider applying to Stanford and stuff like that. So had I known what I know now, of course I'd be an engineer, 100 percent, 1,000 percent. I just wasn't exposed to it. But My not son's like not going to go through that. <laughs> it's not like it's too late for you. You're not like 65. I still go through classes. I do that sort of thing, like when okay. I have free time to do it. Um, and I'd love to like you know learn it, learn it, learn it. Um, but you know I have some things in the interim that I need to take care of. <laughs> but, but, apparently, but apparently, I mean, you you've done okay. You managed to not only uh, work for a hot startup. Mm -hmm. Um, make a name for yourself in Silicon Valley circles, start a company in Silicon Valley, um, get backing from one of the premier uh, venture capital firms in the Valley, all without being an engineer. Mm -hmm. So is it really that important? I mean, a lot of people get funded for great things who aren't en engineers. Yeah. Um, an engineer could have tried to build this business and not build it as well. Um, I, products don't succeed because the founder's an engineer. Products succeed because they work and people love them. Uh, and that was all the formula that we needed. And I think, at least with the folks that invested in us, they saw that. We didn't have to say it, our customers did on our behalf. Um, they knew that I had an authentic story to tell. I suffered from the shaving problem for 15 years. In fact, I referenced my hotchkiss experience of not having any re like retailers nearby. Mm and no one to teach me how to shave in the right way, right? Mm. Like, and I told you a little earlier, these things have built me up to this moment. And I would have never thought it before, right? Like, being boxed in Lakeville, Connecticut, having to use multi-blade razors, like, and I remembered it, and I got fed up about it. And then at that point, I was like, you know what? I have something here. So I really do reflect on that. Like, those past experiences have built me for this moment. And, but like nobody, I don't think anybody would fund a business like ours just because that founder happens to be an engineer. And would it have made me more successful if I were? I don't know, right? Um, 
but it's not my place to question that anyway. I just focus on the present. Did you leave Foursquare to start Walker and Company? 100%. Right? Yeah. So at that time, like we, when I started at the company, it was like three employees. By the time I left, it 150. We had zero merchants on the platform. By the time I left, we had over a million. We had zero brands on the platform. By the time I left, we had 30,000, 40,000. Um, I felt that I did everything I could do for the company, and they just needed um, someone else, probably with more experience, to help take it to the next level. And I told Dennis, there are other ambitious things that I wanted to build. Uh, and I was starting to get some offers to be entrepreneur in residences at um, uh, various venture capital firms. And the day I told Dennis I was going to be leaving, uh, the day after that. When did those offers start coming in? Um, in time, I, six months after I started at Foursquare. It was, <laughs> I don't know, but like, I had a job to do at Foursquare that I cared deeply about. Um, so by the time I was ready to leave, like I had um, opportunities and the network built, um, and it was just a function of aligning myself with folks I wanted to work with for the rest of my life, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and Andreessen Horowitz was that. What's it like to be an entrepreneur in residence? I mean, yeah. that, that, that's, they, they bring in somebody who they think is special, and they're sure. like, why don't you just kind of hang out <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in our meetings and stuff until yeah. we figure out and you figure yeah, out yeah, what yeah. you want to do, right? I think it depends on um, the EIR entrepreneur in residence you're speaking with. Mm -hmm. To this day, I've never met an EIR, with the exception of my own, like, who's really enjoyed it. <laughs> and here's what I mean by that. A lot of folks go into these jobs or these opportunities um, and then they end up having to source deals for their VC firm. They mm -hmm. have to sit in on the partner meetings. Um, they have to deliberate. That takes time. Uh, and when I started, I said, I don't want to do any of this stuff. I want to be able to kind of participate where it makes sense, right? So if there's a cool company that comes in that I want to learn from and learn their pitch process, I'm just going to sit on it. Um, you know, when they, at the partner meetings, I just want to hear and understand how you guys think. You go to enough of those things, and, you know, you start to get it. Mm -hmm. um, and I just want to focus on finding the thing that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, so my situation was fairly unique because I had such a strong relationship with that firm. You know, we were pretty transparent with each other about um, the things that I wanted to do day by day. Um, and it was challenging for sure. Um, but, you know, my situation was fairly unique from other EIRs that I've spoken to. Silicon Valley has a diversity and culture problem right now. And cultural. That's interesting. I like that. <laughs> That's the first time I've heard someone articulate it with that addition. <laughs> um, Silicon Valley, one of the things that I remember reading, I think in high school, when I was reading about how to write, was that the most compelling stories start when the main character's self-concept gets challenged. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at Lord of the Rings, um, you know, Frodo Baggins mm -hmm. thinks he's just kind of this local homebody, sure. but he gets challenged to go on this quest. Sure, sure. And right on down, you know, the line to all sure. of it. Harry Potter thinks he's just this, you know, orphan kid under the stairs, right. but he finds out he's a wizard. What, now that you've figured out that your self-concept is busted, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Silicon Valley's self-concept is pure meritocracy. I remember when I got here, late 1999, they were like, it doesn't matter what color you are, what gender you are, where you're from in the world, you come here, you're brilliant, you have a great idea, you can make billions of dollars. Yeah. Anybody can do it. And Silicon Valley has fiercely held on mm -hmm. to that self-concept. And in the past several months in particular, it's being blown apart by revel revelations by Susan Fowler, at Uber, mm -hmm. uh, by several female entrepreneurs who have been mistreated by potential venture capital investors. What's your take? They have a bunch. Number one, this isn't a problem unique to Silicon Valley. You know, this is coming no. from a person who's worked on Wall Street, same stuff. Wall Street uh, doesn't have that self-concept. Oh, fair. Well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a self-something. We, we could talk about that for days. Wall Street has it, industry has it, et cetera. So it's not a Silicon Valley, it's just a problem. Right. The second thing is, I think it's also unfair. A lot of people um, kind of say Silicon Valley thinks. Silicon Valley doesn't speak for me, right? Silicon Valley doesn't speak for the folks that you mentioned, right? So it's also important that folks um, almost talk directly about who they're talking about, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It's critical, right? Because um, I don't have that blanket assumption. I realize a couple of things. 
Number one, um, but do you recognize the blanket assumption that of course the power yeah. bases within? I Silicon think it's Valley wrong. That's why I'm saying that okay. that, right. that um, kind of that generalized thought is almost like, hey, does Tristan believe that? And I don't believe that at all, right? I think it's complete crap, <laughs> like complete crap. And but it makes you, or at least it used to make you, somewhat of an outlier then. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, there are a lot of things that make me a bit of an outlier, <laughs> but that's, again, like, I'm transparent, and I try to tell the truth, right? Because that's really all that really matters. I think the problem is you can't really say that you're a meritocracy without really understanding what your values are. How is that possible? You know, like our, at our company, we have these six values, courage, inspiration, respect, judgment, wellness, and loyalty. We let that guide every single decision that we make. The people that we hire, the annual, semi-annual reviews that we have, you're rated against that like um, kind of alignment with those values. We entrench it in everything that we do, right? So we make sure that there's a consistency across the board in our values, even if personalities are different, values matter. Right, um, and a lot of people, if they do have values, they just put it on a website and don't entrench it in every single thing that they do. So I think that that's problem number one. You cannot have a meritocracy without understanding what your values are. For those companies that you mentioned, I'd ask, what are their values? But what if your values are bad? Because let's be honest, some people are jerks. I don't think any of those values that I suggested are bad. No. Yeah. But I mean, I'm not saying your personal values, but sure. I mean a person's values. Yeah. Some people are jerks mm -hmm. and they're brilliant. Yeah. We've had this, you know, Ariana Huffington has yeah. talked about brilliant jerks. And if we were to actually write out not the values that the sanitized values mm -hmm. that they would put on the wall for their company, mm -hmm. but the the actual rules that they would live by. Yeah. If we were being honest, they wouldn't necessarily be stuff that you'd want to lift up and maybe base your meritocracy on? Well, so what maybe. happens when honesty and values come into conflict? Well, let's, let's think about it. One of my favorite companies on the planet, right? I, I think Amazon is the greatest retailer that we'll ever see in my entire lifetime, right? Over the past 20 years, they've just been dominating, right? Like just mm -hmm. dominating. And there's a reason why. Like you think about the bias to action, right? And they say stuff like this all the time. And you think about like a lot of the great companies that actually do have those values that they live by. And you think about like, are they male-centric values or like women's values are like unisex, right? And as much as I respect Amazon, I'm sure you've read all the stuff that they had around like gender issues and that sort of stuff as well, potentially. And that's not to say that like it's necessarily like the worst thing on the planet. I think what's great about what they do is that they lay it out, right? And they say it. And it's up for that employee, too, to decide, you know what? I'm not going to put up with this anymore hmm. or I'm not going to apply to this thing. When we lay out our values, like we say it, and the great thing about them is that they're values that everybody can really get behind, right? Right. Um, and it's up to those employees, once they're in, to check us against those things. Right? Okay. Um, now, that doesn't mean that uh, we can't get better and continue to get better and strive for kind of deeper values that are virtuous and awesome in Amazon and any of these other companies. So it sounds like you're saying the danger is in delusion and hypocrisy. Right. No, the danger is not, not acting on it. upfront about what your values are. It's not only being upfront. Like, anyone can get in front of their kind of company in all hands and say, here are our values. Right. It's like, how no, do we enforce they really are, them? What they right? really are. Yeah, no, but like, even if you say what they really are and everybody agrees to it, they still have to be enforced. Right? Mm -hmm. The most important part of this is enforcement. Like, we enforce, like, you're rated against your goal attainment in our reviews. But, but you also can only you're enforce your actual values. And what I mean is not the values that you write down, but the values that you live out. Right? So if those two things aren't in alignment, if you say we're really nice people, but really you are throat-slitting killers when it comes to sales. Well, but, but here's my point. Right? Let's, let's assume niceness was a value. But yeah. For, and someone articulated that niceness is our value. Yeah. So is it actually really a value? Well, you'll know that if, like... I'm reviewing this person and I'm rating their niceness for the past six months. Right. Have they been nice or not? And if you see that the majority of your kind of employees have not been, then perhaps you need to rethink that value a little bit. Right? And so I'm you have to articulate point, it first and then enforce it and then check against it. I think Silicon Valley has, at a certain point, some, some companies have said, many companies have said diversity is a value, but there hasn't necessarily been transparency and measurement around how are women really treated, mm -hmm. female engineers? So totally. take a look at, at Uber. People are aghast. What? Women engineers aren't getting leather jackets? Yeah. You know, but this is supposed to be a progressive company. That's mm -hmm. about changing the world in a positive way. And it was just sort of assumed that if that's sort of your stated value, that your actual practices would either line up with that, or when someone points out that your practices don't line up with sure. that, 
change would happen. That's right. And I, I feel like that's what's happening in many quarters in Silicon Valley right now mm -hmm. is there is this discrepancy that's being brought yeah. up. And the question is, well, what are we going to do about it? Yeah. Are we going to change our values to say, okay, okay, honestly, we weren't that serious about yeah, diversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really about, you know, cool ideas and making a profit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if diversity works in, then that's okay. Yeah, yeah. But really, we don't care that much. Of course. Of course. Or, is it going to be, yes, you're right, we see these examples, we see we have to measure progress right. toward these values that we stated, and we're going to do that. A lot of it is about incentives, right? Like, and I kind of explain that through, so I have a not-for-profit called Code 2040, right? And at oh, Code 2040, we bring the highest performing black and Latino engineering undergraduates out to the valley and provide them with all the tools they need to be successful. So they'll get their internship, but we'll provide them with like media training. We'll do fireside one-on-one -on -one chats with tech luminaries. That's what it's a very intense program for like 10 to 12 weeks of which we have a 90 plus percent full-time offer rate. Like these are some of the best engineers out. And the funny thing is when we started this, we're five years old now. We, this summer we're gonna have 150 fellows. Next year we'll have 250. Hmm. Um, when we started this with five fellows, you know, we were questioned. Right? Right? Like, can you actually find the best talent, right? Um, and look, and they'll always say, well, we find the best engineers at the Harvards and the MITs, et cetera. And we say two things. Number one, the best talent isn't necessarily at those schools. And number two, I challenge your assumption that you're actually finding kind of the best talent, certainly black and Latino engineering undergraduates, at those schools that you reference. And we're proving that out. And our pitch now is like, listen, not only do we have the best engineers who happen to be black and Latino and our full-time off rates are greater than your own, but think about the amount of value that they're delivering. Think about the value and the amount of wealth creation that they can create when their founders actually kind of guiding the cultures in their businesses. When you think about the demographic shift happening in this country, some of this stuff that Silicon Valley doesn't understand too, is they can't get in the way of that demographic shift. This stuff is happening, right? Like the wealth creation is happening. The in increased influence is happening. And whether or not they want to kind of impact their workforces as a result of it, I think that they're going to be a failure if they do not. And I give you this one example, and this is appealing to the incentives. If I'm, let's say Facebook were built in the year 2040, when the majority minority flip happens. Mm -hmm. Let's say no one knew about Facebook until 2040. Would it be Spanish language first or English first? Right? It'll be Android first or iPhone first, right? Like these are incredibly strategic questions that they don't necessarily have to ask now. But what if they did? You know? Mm -hmm. And this stuff is inevitable. So I think folks need to have a respect for that. There's a business kind of proposition to it. There's no shortage of research to suggest that this diversity leads to better business outcomes. Um, so if folks aren't improving with those facts, it's just naivete. And if they're going to continue to be naive, we'll go out and recruit those people who are uniquely talented to our inevitable end. This stuff starts at the top, right? If you look at these companies, who are the folks at the top? Look at ours, right? Like, we're majority-minority. My leadership team is majority women of color. It's a big reason that like, I think we're so successful because we're appealing to the audience that we have. Right? If I have organizations that are appealing to billions of people on earth, their organizations should reflect the diversity of those billions of people on earth who happen to be majority people of color. My thanks to Tristan Walker. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, YouTube. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.